Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Trade Desk First Quarter 2022 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants have been placed on listen-only mode, and the floor will be open for questions and comments after the presentation. It is now my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, Chris Toth, Vice President of Investor Relations. Sir, the floor is yours. Thank you, Operator. Hello and good afternoon to everyone. Welcome to the Trade Desk First Quarter 2022 Earnings Conference Call. On the call today are Founder and CEO Jeff Green and Chief Financial Officer Blake Grayson. A copy of our earnings press release can be found on our website at thetradedesk.com in the Investor Relations section. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that except for historical information, some of the discussion in our responses and Q&A may contain forward-looking statements which are dependent upon certain risks and uncertainties. In particular, our expectations around the impact of the recent pandemic on our business and results of operations, in addition to potential supply chain disruptions or other macro events that could disrupt advertising spend are all subject to change. Should any of these risks materialize or should our assumptions prove to be incorrect, actual financial results could differ materially from our projections or those implied by these forward-looking statements. I encourage you to refer to our risk factors referenced in our press release and in our most recent SEC filings. In addition to reporting our GAAP financial results, we present supplemental non-GAAP financial data. A reconciliation of the GAAP to non-GAAP results can be found in our earnings press release. We believe that providing non-GAAP measures combined with our GAAP results provides a more meaningful representation of the company's operational performance. I will now turn the call over to founder and CEO Jeff Green. Jeff? Uh, Thanks, Chris, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. As you've seen from the press release, we are off to a great start once again this year. For the first quarter, revenue grew 43% compared with last year, our fastest first quarter growth rate in the last four years. Our strong growth is a testament to a variety of factors that I want to touch on today and which give us significant optimism for the future. Our performance is especially encouraging because annual advertising budgets are often being reset and reconsidered in Q1, making them historically harder to predict. And this year, the macro environment was challenging with the ongoing global pandemic, war in the Ukraine, and the higher rates of inflation around the world. Despite those challenges, we again exceeded our own expectations. I believe we are now firmly established as the default DSP for the open internet, and that we are very well positioned to grow and grab share regardless of the macro environment. We now have over a 1,000 customers, representing tens of thousands of advertisers spending on our platform across the open Internet. We continue to see a steady stream of new agencies and brands starting to work with us for the first time, as well as existing customers increasing their spend with us. We are seeing strong momentum around key initiatives such as Connected TV, Shopper Data, UID2, OpenPath, and our game-changing new data marketplace. In each case, We are working with our advertising clients to drive maximum value from their campaign dollars, and this, in turn, helps us grow our trusted relationships with the world's leading brands and agencies, many of whom are signing long-term strategic partnerships with us. As a CEO, it's always important for me to look at how we are performing relative to the industry. For example, the IAB and PwC predict digital advertising will increase approximately 8% in 2022, Publicis Group's Zenith estimates the increase at about 14%. But either way, 
we continue to grow at a pace well ahead of industry estimates, which means we are gaining share and adding significant value. I continue to be extremely optimistic, in part because of the combination of our exceptional 95% plus retention rate and our significant growth rate. There are macroeconomic forces which have changed the media and technology landscape dramatically in the last few months, especially in CTV, which also give me optimism. As many of you know, I've spent many of the last 10 years publicly predicting that Netflix and nearly everyone else would eventually show ads. Netflix recently announced that they are likely to make ads a part of their future. This and so many other great things are happening in CTV. In fact, I can't think of a time that the TV landscape has had more positive changes in a short period of time than what has happened in Q1 of this year. I want to spend the biggest block of time on that. But in order to discuss the significance of what's happening in CTV, we first need to discuss what's happening with two foundational initiatives. First, our work on a new identity framework for the Internet, and second, our work to make the supply chain more efficient. So first, identity. The Internet has been operating on a quid pro quo since it became commercial, but the Internet has been a suboptimal Internet. And by that, I mean we've used cookies as a makeshift technology to enable relevant advertising. But due to a series of events and choices, cookies are going away. Currently, Google has the majority of the browser market share around the entire Internet outside of China, so they decide when this transition is going to take place, and they've currently targeted the end of Q1 2023. This has created a very unique opportunity to upgrade the Internet. Indeed, without those many circumstances, this opportunity wouldn't exist. We're upgrading from an opt-out Internet to an opt-in Internet. The open Internet is scrambling to coordinate and collectively upgrade. Many different opt-in IDs are being created. Some of them will scale and survive, some won't. However, those that scale will be distributed, encrypted, and interoperable. We don't believe IDs can or will scale if they don't upgrade the experience for consumers. With this in mind, we developed and launched UID2. This is the second version of UID, version 2 being email and phone number based instead of cookie based. This allows consumers to take their privacy settings and controls with them all over the Internet without loss of control or a false sense of security. Some of the privacy protection that has been promised to consumers by large technology companies with billions of logins has misled some consumers to believe that they control privacy, opt-in, and the quid pro quo of the Internet across CTVs, mobile environments, and computer browsers. UID actually does enable consumers to set preferences and restrictions for each web publisher, mobile app, and CTV app. They choose who they trust and can change their mind. Their preferences are tied to an encrypted, hashed, salted ID based on email address or phone number that a consumer can take with them. Because this move to an upgraded opt-in Internet is scheduled to happen in about 10 months, based on the date Google deprecates third-party cookies in Chrome, the entire open Internet ecosystem is thinking about identity, and we continue to make significant progress with UID2. And I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about this progress and the various innovations that are driving that progress. 
In terms of the number of unique IDs, we are now measuring UIDs on billions of devices. With every passing month, we are posting new all-time highs. That comes as more advertisers activate on UID2 and as more publishers adopt it. Let me give you one quick example, which is particularly illustrative of the business value of UID2. Mediavine is a company that manages advertising for more than 8,500 independent publishers. Those include some large publishers like The Hollywood Gossip and some very niche publishers like Steamy Kitchen. They're big. They are a Comscore top five lifestyle media platform with more than 130 million monthly viewers and 17 billion monthly ad impressions. Mediavine has now adopted and deployed UID2. Their publishers have seen CPMs increase more than 100%. With UID2, they can create privacy-safe identifiers for their readers, pass those on safely to advertisers who can then serve relevant advertising without ever knowing anything directly identifiable about the reader. Better opt-ins and more sign-ins, including new lightweight SSOs, is what a post-cookie internet is going to look like. And pioneering advertisers, publishers, and CTV providers are building that internet now. Momentum is amazing, but we're still in the early stages simply because the internet is so big. This work is both inevitable and essential. Without relevant advertising, CPMs will crater. That's the fundamental value exchange of the Internet, relevant advertising in exchange for free content. That's why so many publishers are implementing UID2, with many already reporting strong CPM growth. The ecosystem of UID partners also continues to expand. Infosum, a leading data collaboration platform, recently signed up as another closed operator of UID2. Many leading advertisers and their agencies, including Omnicom, already use InfoSum to activate their first-party data and are excited about this partnership as they look to unlock the value of that data while maintaining control over it using UID2. AppLovin also recently joined the UID ecosystem. AppLovin is one of the world's leading mobile in-app ad exchanges, and our advertisers now have access to ad opportunities across more than 140,000 apps and 1.8 billion devices with the precision and relevance that UID2 creates. Solutions such as UID2 allow us to manage that value exchange in a way that improves the experience for all parties. I believe this new approach will ultimately result in an upgrade to the Internet. We also recently announced that we are launching a version of UID2 that will be tailored for the European market called EUID. To understand the connection between UID2 and EUID, consider an analogy to Chrome and Chromium. Chromium is a free open source development platform for web browsers. Many browsers use core elements of Chromium, including Google Chrome, which uses Chromium as a foundation, but which is enhanced and adapted by Google. Essentially, Chrome is one iteration built on top of Chromium. In the same way, UID2 is an open source project and EUID is a version of it developed for Europe that meets the specific needs of that market, especially the legislative requirements. Building this specific version also allows us to build in the features that give our partners reassurance that data will not leave Europe. Even for international companies, 
that do business and have data in Europe. With this approach, we believe that EUID is the most GDPR-compliant identity solution in the market today. In order for the open Internet to thrive, it will require more authentication or logging in. High CPMs and relevance will gravitate to publishers and content owners who have logged in users. CTV and news sites and apps, especially that provide addressability while significantly upgrading consumer privacy. And new identity solutions, including UID2, are key here. With UID2, advertisers can safely onboard first-party data, and then with interoperability with CTV apps, they can find valuable audiences, both current and prospects, exactly when they are viewing their favorite premium content. Ultimately, this is a much better advertising experience than one based on cookies. Cookies were never really intended to do this work. They were just co-opted. But in new technology environments like CTV, we can build a new identity framework that allows advertisers to create relevance, enables publishers to maximize yield, and hands consumers much more control over their privacy. So in many ways, the CTV ecosystem will pioneer the future of identity. To be clear, it's not about any one identity solution. It's about interoperability. This new fabric will include new currencies, such as UID2, but also other identifiers, whether it's those developed by CTV providers themselves, measurement partners like Nielsen, or by companies such as LiveRamp. And we are working with all of them to ensure this new fabric pays off those promises I just outlined for all participants. There's so much to discuss today that I'm going to bookmark a related issue that I'd like to discuss in a future call, our data marketplace. The data marketplace is as healthy as ever, largely because UID2 and a better opt-in environment creates a better foundation for our data marketplace, which has the potential to become the largest in the world. I don't think any walled garden can ever create a data marketplace to rival it. Already, we have enacted massive marketplace design upgrades. As a result, we're already seeing higher data usage, better CPAs and ROI for advertisers, better margins, and a faster spinning flywheel for us. We have once again stair-step increased the consumer surplus of our offering to our clients. There is so much more to report on this and more change and benefit to come, so I'm excited to talk about that in the future. Related to all the progress we're making with UID is the recent launch of OpenPath. We announced it in our last earnings report, and I'd like to give an update today. First, a reminder of what it is. OpenPath is a way for our advertisers to plug directly into publisher inventory via our platform. By plugging in directly, publishers have the opportunity to capture the value of an opt-in Internet and implement changes that benefit all participants including advertisers and agencies. I do want to reiterate that this does not mean that the trade desk is getting into the SSP or supply-side business. OpenPath is simply a direct path to inventory with publishers that already have their own yield management solutions. OpenPath helps eliminate steps in the process where there may be fees or charges with no value in return. For example, since we announced OpenPath, we have shut down Google's open bidding on our platform. When we announced OpenPath a few months ago, we also had commitments from news organizations 
that represent a majority of news consumers in the United States. Organizations such as Reuters, The Washington Post, Gannett, Condé Nast, which owns Vanity Fair, Vogue, The New Yorker, and many others, McClatchy, which owns more than 30 leading daily newspapers, including the Kansas City Star and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Hearst magazines and newspapers, which operate major titles such as the Cosmopolitan and the San Francisco Chronicle, the Tribune Group, and several others. In the days following the announcement, we had more than 100 inbound inquiries from major publishers looking to join the initiative. We're prioritizing journalism as we launch OpenPath because nowhere is the danger of the absence of identity more apparent. Recently, we announced more journalistic publishers committing to OpenPath, including the LA Times, BuzzFeed, Forbes, Mediavine, and Red Ventures, which includes publications such as CNET and Lonely Planet. As more publishers adopt OpenPath, they will make UID2 deployment or interoperability a key element of their plan. In doing so, they can activate their own first-party subscriber data in a way that protects that data, but also provides enough relevance to advertisers that we can enhance the value of those ad impressions and yield for publishers. For those that don't show most of their ads after a user has logged in, OpenPath will include a simple UID2-based SSO that will help them make this essential transition to a post-cookie environment. Let me bring this back to CTV because CTV is really the epicenter of open Internet identity. We've seen massive moves in the CTV landscape recently. In 2021, we, we added exponentially more inventory thanks to new partnerships with a wide range of partners, including Peacock, Paramount Plus, Discovery Plus, and Sky. Early this year, we entered a scaled relationship with HBO Max, one of the most recent and fastest-growing content companies to aggressively adopt ad-funded subscriptions for consumers. On a more macro level, Amazon bought MGM and streams ads through IMDb TV. Just this year so far, Disney Plus announced that ads would be added as a choice to their app. Microsoft acquired Xander. Time Warner left the AT&T family and is now owned by Discovery and is mostly led by Discovery Plus leadership which is one of the most savvy programmatic teams in TV. And of course, Netflix recently announced that it will likely make ads available on their platform. These major changes in the landscape have huge implications for the future of CTV and programmatic. A tailored result for most of our clients, TV is the largest segment of their campaign spend. That unique combination of video and audio delivered at a time when the audience is leaned in, remains the most effective way to touch the hearts and minds of consumers. As those consumers have shifted in mass to streaming platforms, advertisers are following them. For consumers, on-demand content is just better. As content owners and the streaming apps are competing for more subscribers, it has become very clear, providing consumers with choice is the only way to win. This is a great setup for Netflix. By not having ads to date, Netflix has protected an amazing user experience, but it required Netflix to keep raising prices so that they could keep making and buying content. At some point, price becomes an issue for nearly all consumers. Consider what we can learn from TV of the past. 
Even in the days of cable bundles, very few consumers paid for every premium channel, Showtime, HBO, Cinemax, NBA League Pass, etc. In the past, nearly all channels have had ads. Now, once again, consumers will have something better, choice. Netflix will very likely set up a clean option for consumers, see ads and pay meaningfully less or pay slightly more and avoid ads altogether. Consumers will continue to be given more choices. I predict that with this move, Netflix will continue to be something of a pace car in TV innovation. They were the first ones to really nail the subscription model for CTV. They were the first to 100 million global subscribers, the first to 200 million, and they continue to lead that race today. And now they are embracing consumer choice as a way to expand their market share even further. It's important to note that at least half of Netflix subscribers are outside the United States. So the implications to this move has global ramifications to the world of CTV. But there will even be more to this part of the story. As Netflix explores advertising options, they will be unburdened by legacy processes that some of their competitors are working through. For example, they will be able to structure their advertising operations so they don't have sales channel conflict. They can be data-driven from the start in everything that they do using data to ensure that they maximize yield on every ad impression. In all of these dimensions, and likely many others, I believe Netflix will continue to innovate and set the pace. And as with any market, others will have to adapt accordingly. Many of them already are. We are working on these opportunities with leading CTV providers every single day. HBO Max, Disney Plus, and Netflix are all public about their intentions to implement ad experiences. This adds pressure to all content owners to accelerate the move to data-driven buying and selling and finding ways to make the most competitive consumer experience, which means limited relevant ads with high CPMs. For CTV to continue to produce the amazing and expensive content that is driving this new golden age of television, relevant ads are the only way to fund and preserve it. This requires CTV to participate in the open Internet because in walled gardens one cannot control universal reach and frequency. Additionally, I believe this means every CTV company around the world is racing to create this optimal viewing experience. TV has historically competed regionally due to the licensing and broadcast regulations. Netflix and YouTube have made this a global race. We're seeing content owners all over the world quickly adapting to these recent moves. Recently, I've personally spoken about this directly with some of our content partners in the United States and in Europe. They are already feeling the pressure to move fast and to improve their ad experiences. This messaging from Netflix, Disney Plus, and HBO Max is requiring everyone to embrace biddable environments and move away from legacy models like upfronts and even programmatic guaranteed where advertiser choice is limited. These changes in the TV landscape also have adjusted marketers' mindsets. As advertisers are seeing reach and impact erode from traditional cable television, they are focused on moving to premium streaming content. Increasingly, this is the most important buy on the media plan. 
Marketers want to advertise against premium content as much as possible. It's content they can trust. It's content that reflects their own brand. It's content they can activate on and measure against with precision. As advertisers prioritize ads on premium content on our platform, they're beginning to start their campaign planning there too. As a result, user-generated content is increasingly getting the leftovers. With the explosive growth of premium CTV over the last few years, especially the last year, the trend is clear. We see it clearly reflected in some of the UGC data that's been reported out in the last few weeks. And it's also why CTV remains by far our fastest growing channel and why premium video in all of its forms has become the largest segment of our business. This trend will be equally apparent internationally where there is also a flight to premium content. We work with many of the Fortune 500 companies, almost all of whom direct their advertising campaigns at multiple international markets. As more premium supply comes online, particularly premium video, we have more than enough demand to satisfy it. And we could not be more excited about what this shift in Australia, but also in many other markets where AVOD will be a vital driver of subscription growth because of tighter economic pressure on consumer wallets. Premium video, where everything is authenticated, is one of those key areas where the future of Internet identity is being forged, not just for CTV, but across the open Internet, including inside the browser. That may not seem obvious, as cookies are not present in CTV, and so you'd think they'd be less affected by the potential phase-out of cookies next year. But CTV needs persistent identity to have effective and high CPM ads, and they need high CPM ads to fund that content. It's economics that's driving that process. As more CTV leaders embrace advertising, they want to ensure that they create as much addressability as possible because that's the only way that they can maintain high CPMs. An advertiser will pay, say, a $12 CPM if they know the viewers are watching the latest hot reality show. But they will pay three times that if there's a reasonable chance those viewers are interested in their product. And that's why they will be among the pioneers of the new identity framework or the open Internet. I'd like to wrap this up by bringing us back to the market opportunity in front of us. The global advertising industry is moving rapidly towards a $1 trillion TAM. As the market grows, the majority of that spend will be digital, and all of it will ultimately be traded programmatically. At the same time, the industry is making important progress in several dimensions in building the Internet advertising ecosystem of the future, one that no longer relies on cookies. The Internet is getting an upgrade. We're moving from an opt-out Internet to an opt-in Internet. Everything is founded on a better identity framework. On that foundation comes better controls for consumers, more choices for consumers on how to pay for CTV subscriptions, whether that's with money or with ad time, and better measurement and data. As the ecosystem continues to evolve and move away from walled gardens led by CTV, we will unleash the power of programmatic for our advertisers and for our publisher partners. It will be an improved experience for everyone, consumers included. The innovations we are driving to help accomplish this are already delivering performance improvements for us today. They are a key factor in why we are off to such a positive start in 2022 
and why we are so optimistic about our growth opportunities looking forward. As I said earlier, advertisers are increasingly gravitating to our platform as the de facto DSP of the open Internet, led by CTV. And we will continue to innovate to reinforce that leadership position and deliver more value to our advertisers. Our profitable business model allows us complete flexibility to make these investments and continue to drive growth. In doing so, we will help build a better Internet for all stakeholders, and all of that is what makes me so excited about our growth prospects. With that, I will hand the call over to Blake, who will take you through more of the financial details. Thank you, Jeff, and good afternoon, everyone. As you have seen in our results, 2022 has started out strong with solid Q1 financial performance and execution despite the current macro environment. Q1 revenue was $315 million, a 43% increase and an acceleration in growth from a year ago. In Q1, we benefited from a digital advertising environment that is leaning increasingly towards data-driven advertising and measurable results. This was evidenced by the continued strength in CTV, which again led our growth from a scaled channel perspective. Solomar adoption is over 80%, and we continue to see promising results as customers are utilizing Solomar to leverage more data elements than they did previously. More data-driven precision improves ROI for customers, and we believe this helps spin the flywheel of our business faster. We are also starting to see green shoots in our retail media business, with Q1 representing our first full quarter of operations in this space. We have brought on additional retail media partners into the platform and are cautiously optimistic as spend continues to ramp up. With the durable top-line performance in Q1, we generated $121 million in adjusted EBITDA, or about 38% of revenue. The $121 million in adjusted EBITDA represents a 72% increase from a year ago. In Q1, we continue to benefit from temporarily lower-than-expected operating expenses partly driven by the virtual environment. Even recognizing that, I'm proud of our continued ability to consistently grow our top-line revenue while generating meaningfully positive adjusted EBITDA and cash flow that has enabled our cash and short-term investments balance to end the quarter over the $1 billion mark for the first time. In the current environment, our demonstrated ability to invest for growth and self-fund our high growth rates through profitable long-term cash flow generation sets us up well for the future. From a scaled channel perspective, CTV, by a wide margin, led our growth again during the quarter. For Q1, video, including CTV, represented our largest percent of share on the platform, followed by mobile. Video and mobile each represented about 40% of spend. Display continued to grow well in Q1 and represented about 15% of spend, and audio represented about 5% of spend. Geographically, North America represented 88% of spend, and international represented 12% of spend. International's overall share, while relatively small for our overall business, dropped slightly from Q4 and the prior year. We did see a larger gap between our North American growth rate and international growth rate, particularly in the second half of Q1, mainly due to spend in Europe. However, through April, Europe has recovered to levels we saw early in Q1, although there is still some room to improve. I'm excited about our opportunity to grab share as we have proven that as our customers become more deliberate and in our flywheel, 
It is still early days for us internationally, but we are optimistic about our market position and the long-term growth opportunity that we have. In terms of the verticals that represent at least 1% of our spend, nearly all of them grew in the double digits during the quarter. Both travel and pets more than doubled compared with a year ago. Shopping and food and drink were all also very strong. We believe there is still the potential for share gain and improvement in most of our verticals. Turning now to expenses. Excluding stock-based compensation, operating expenses were $207 million in Q1, up 30% year-over-year. We continue to see significant operating leverage as we scale the business and improve our efficiency. Our income tax benefit of $2.7 million in the quarter was mainly due to the tax benefits associated with employee stock-based awards, the timing of which can be variable. Adjusted net income for the quarter was $105 million, or $0.21 per fully diluted share. Net cash provided by operating activities was $146 million for Q1, and free cash flow was $136 million. DSOs exiting the quarter were 88 days, down five days from a year ago. DTOs were 72 days, down three days from a year ago. We exited Q1 with a strong cash and liquidity position. Cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments ended the quarter at $1.1 billion. We have no debt on the balance sheet. Turning to our outlook for the second quarter, we estimate Q2 revenue to be at least $364 million, which would represent growth of 30 for the structure in place to continue driving long-term growth while scaling our business efficiently, and I'm cautiously optimistic about continued improvement in the future. That concludes our prepared remarks. And with that, operator, let's open up the call for questions. Certainly. Ladies and gentlemen, the floor is now open for questions. If you have any questions or comments, please press star 1 on your phone at this time. We ask that while posing your question, you please pick up your handset if listening on speakerphone to provide optimum sound quality. Once again, please press star 1 if you have any questions at this time. Please hold while we poll for questions. And the first question is coming from Sham Patil from SIG. Sham, your line is live. Thank you. Hey, guys. Uh, congrats on the results. I had a couple of questions. Um, first one, Jeff, you know, when we look at your results and your outlook, you know, they, they look a lot better than what we've seen from a lot of other... Uh, uh, so, uh, um, I, I, you know, as I look at the, the outperformance for this quarter and I just look at all the things that went right in this quarter... You know, it's hard not to start with connected television. You know, I mentioned in the prepared remarks that CTV had more positive changes than ever, and I, I don't know that I could have made up a better script in terms of, of just seeing companies like HBO move from sort of testing phase to scale, and then Netflix and Disney Plus talking about ads. Uh, were really created in an environment that is really optimal for ads. And, of course, we already had great relationships with Paramount and Peacock and, and, and Sky and so many of those that you think of as the AVOD leaders to now have really everybody entering into this world of choice that is driven by ads. It's just a very exciting, a, a, a very exciting phenomenon. But... Uh, you know, I'm also just very encouraged by the fact that, of course, there's macro uh, um, pressures.
pressures and noise and, and un uncertainty that everybody's seen caused from war and inflation and, and, of course, the stock market bouncing around a lot. But in that environment, what we've historically seen is that's a moment when CMOs and marketers get very deliberate about where they're going to spend money, and they become very data-driven in the choices that they're making. Uh, and in, in our case, that means they're spending more with us. Uh, so I'm just incredibly encouraged uh, by all the things that we're, we've seen this quarter and how it sets it up for the rest of the year, which gets to the second half of your question. So with all these moves in, in advertising, especially from the global players of CTV, uh, uh, I think it really sets up the second half of the year for around the world to see movement towards ad-funded uh, uh, CTV in a way that we, you know, started seeing early on in the, in the pandemic, but I think we're seeing even more of, uh, of now. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time in the prepared remarks talking about shopper data. You know, the, uh, in the first uh, uh, quarter of this year, we also just had our first full quarter with, with Walmart and, and their DSP, who's just doing really well. We have talked about new partnerships with Walgreens and Drizzly. There have been others that have talked about our partnership with Target's media company, Roundell. So to have Walgreens, Walmart, and Target on, on the, the platform and partners as it relates to data and measurement, just unbelievable. But just, a, 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 again, nearing a perfect setup as it relates to, to shopper partnerships. And uh, then, of course, in the second half of the year, we're also going to have a, a midterm election. Uh, from recent events, that seems to be uh, uh, one that's going to be exciting as well, and I, I suspect just because of, uh, of the momentum and attention uh, uh, that it will have uh, uh, more investment than, than most. Uh, and we think it, it's, it's, we're very well positioned to have it be our biggest uh, uh, political year ever. Um, Solomar is now at over 80% adoption, so uh, we'll finish that by the end of the year. Uh, so in other words, we'll move everything over to Solomar, the platform that we shipped on, on July 7-7 last year, to go from launch to 100% adoption uh, the following year is something that we were aiming for, but now we're extremely confident that we'll hit. And then, you know, we spent a lot of time in the prepared remarks talking about UID and OpenPath. I mean, we mentioned a, a, a laundry list of names on OpenPath, but we didn't mention those that we mentioned in the press release just a couple days ago, BuzzFeed, LA Times, Forbes, Mediavine, Red Ventures, which includes CNET and a whole bunch of others, uh, uh, have also been added to it just since last quarter that we announced publicly since. So all of those uh, uh, amount to some amazing contributors to the second uh, or to the to the remainder of the year. I was going to say second half, but to the remainder of the year. Cool. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Tom. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Yousef Squally from Truist Securities. Yousef, your line is live. Great. Thank you for taking questions. Uh, two, if I can, um, Jeff, uh, Three to four years ago, you were already of the, the strong opinion or the strong belief that Netflix had to offer an ad-supported um, model that was just a matter of time. Um, how do you feel about your chances of potentially partnering 
with Netflix around that opportunity and or the potential risk of Netflix potentially building its own DSP a la Amazon. And Blake, um, Q2 EBITDA implies a pretty big sequential and you're on your drop, I think, to about 33%. Can you maybe just flesh out the biggest areas of investments and whether there is, you know, a typical kind of conservative built into that or and, and just how should we think about that for the remainder of the year? Thank you. Um, yeah, great. Uh, so uh, you're right. I've been I, I've been saying for for more than half a decade that I believe Netflix will eventually have to show ads, uh, and that's really based on the fact that I believe that consumers want choice, and that while Netflix has done a phenomenal job of preserving an amazing experience for consumers, that at some point that becomes cost prohibitive because you have to just keep raising prices. That is exactly what's happened over the years. Uh, and they're now at a place where I believe they they will benefit from offering that choice. I think they have more pressure on them because of that history. I believe they have more pressure on them to create an amazing ad experience than anybody in the streaming competition, if you will. Um, it's partly because of that that uh, – as you may know, David Wells, who was the previous CFO of Netflix, uh, joined our board almost five years ago. Uh, so we've had a great relationship with Netflix because of him, and uh, I'm extremely optimistic in the, in the potential for us to partner with Netflix. One thing that you should know, and Yusuf, you, I think you put uh, just words to – something I've heard from a few other people as well, is why wouldn't Netflix build this themselves? So what most advertisers are trying to do is they are trying uh, to manage what we call reach and frequency. Like how often do I show the same ad to the same consumer across apps and channels? And so if I just control how many times I show an ad on on station 112 and then just – control how many times I show an ad separately on station 114, and those two things don't talk to each other at all, you can waste a lot of money and show a lot of repetitive ads. This is why in traditional television, there's a lot of repetition. It's also why the ad break has so many ads in it. If Netflix were to provide an ad experience that had lots of repetition, in order for them to make the money that they need, that they would have to show lots of them uh, uh, because the CPMs would be lower because they're less effective, which creates more repetition, and you get into that uh, that unfortunate cycle that I believe has happened in traditional television. The surest way out of that is for them to partner with a, an objective, independent DSP that manages reach and frequency and budgeting across all the fragmented pieces of, uh, uh, of streaming so that we can provide uh, the very best ad experience for, for everybody uh, because we'll be paying the highest prices uh, because of the fact that it's so much more efficient or effective. Uh, so I'm very optimistic uh, that we'll uh, um, be able to create partnership with every major streaming company in the world, including Netflix. The fact that we have a phenomenal relationship uh, with Discovery 
and therefore also Time Warner and HBO. We have great relationship with them. We have a fantastic relationship uh, with Disney. Uh, we've, we've partnered for years with Peacock and with Paramount and so many others. Uh, uh, it, of course, I have the expectation that we'll do the same thing with Netflix. And uh, you just have to follow up on your question on the on the EBITDA for Q2. Just to frame it up, I'm really happy with our situation and where we are. You know, like we mentioned on last quarter's call, we do expect in 2022 to increase the pace of our investment um, as we focus on the long-term growth of our business. And, you know, and that's got, that's got a support from a very strong business model that produces strong free cash flow and has a really, really solid balance sheet. Our Q2 forecast reflects that. It includes accelerating hiring across the business, uh, particularly in engineering, business development, and account management roles that really play a huge factor in the in driving our long-term growth. You know, we also expect our in-office expenses to start ramping this year to pre-pandemic levels, and we also anticipate hosting more employee events to to get the team together. But in terms of this year. You know, Q1 EBITDA was very strong. I'm comfortable with our EBITDA trajectory and where things stand over the remainder of the year. And, you know, like we said last quarter, you know, we do expect the operating expense structure of the company to be better than it was prior to the pandemic. And, you know, as I've always said, this business is really built for, and I'm really optimistic about driving meaningful EBITDA and free cash flow as we scale. So I think that lots of great opportunities in front of us, and and I feel pretty good about it. Great. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Matt Swanson from RBC Capital. Matt, your line is live. Yeah, thank you. And I'll add my congratulations on the quarter. Jeff, maybe staying on the theme of CTV and Netflix, you mentioned still having an abundance or maybe an overabundance of demand for CTV. Well, with the upfronts coming up, could you maybe give us an updated view on those supply-demand curves, especially for premium CTV content, and how you think about the additions of Netflix and Disney Plus with all that content coming online, and whether or not we'll see lower CPMs? And then I guess there's kind of a follow-up. Um, you know, Jeff, you mentioned that obviously you saw Netflix coming from a long term or a long time away. Uh, when we think about the maturity curve now, though, for any subscription model hitting that threshold of payers, do you think this is going to change how new products launch from here on out when they see, you know, a Disney and Netflix and HBO Max all needing ads? Is, are we going to see any subscription-only products still get launched? Uh, first of all, I appreciate the congratulations. We're, we're uh, extremely excited about the, the results and as well as just all the things going in our direction most notably on CTV, so uh, appreciate that sentiment. So uh, uh, first, let me just address head-on the concern that you raised in your first question. Will CPMs be lower as a result of this additional inventory? And can I just describe a little bit that demand? So the demand is really off the charts, and it's in large part because people are moving away from traditional cable television where there are just tons of ads, and you're paying more and getting less than you have in a very long time. And so as a result, when you're adding new inventory, it's desperately needed. There's demand already lined up. And the thing that is really great about the way that we're seeing players like Disney or what I anticipate Netflix will do 
or HBO Max, and then those that have been doing it for a while, is that they're, they're of course, in order to continue subscribers, which is the way that they're continue to gain subscribers, which is the way they're all graded, uh, uh, they have to have a great ad experience. They can't alienate users. That means that they have to provide relevance and they have to provide very few ads. So that means we're going to see scarcity for a while, uh, uh, for as far as we can see in the future, honestly. Uh, uh, and that means that there will be demand and that it is the best way for them to get incremental subscribers. Because I believe that those economics are becoming obvious uh, uh, and obvious to everyone, so much so that they, the biggest names in the business seem to pivot very quickly that we're just SBOT. I don't think it's strategically smart for anybody who's just entering the space now to start with SBOT only. You know, it's like any product where, where over time as it evolves, if you, if you launch the iPhone today or a new smartphone and it doesn't have features that rivals the iPhone 13 and instead it, it, it rivals the features of iPhone 1, well, you're just not going to be competitive. You've got to, you've got to be at parity with the current state of the market. The, the current way to compete is to offer consumers choice. And I believe that that becomes increasingly important for anybody entering streaming wars with hopes of competing with the biggest players in the space. Thank you. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Vasily Karasyov from Cannonball Research. Vasily, your line is live. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. I have a couple, if I may. One on Europe. You said in the prepared remarks that spend did slow down around the start of the war in Ukraine, but then recovered um, in April. So can you tell us your thought maybe in more detail about what the advertising environment is in Europe right now and where it's going in your view? The second question is about political. Um, you did make some comments on it, but um, wanted to see if you could give us more details. So broadcasting companies have been reporting, and they're saying that they see a, polit a record political cycle spending so far. So can you tell us, uh, please, how you feel you're positioned, and do you think um, this could be some incremental revenue growth this year from uh, from political? Thank you. Uh, yeah, sounds great. Uh, I'm going to ask Blake uh, uh, to actually take a stab at both of them, and then I'll also take a stab at both of them. So, Blake? Sure. Uh, thanks, Vasily, for the question. So, r with regards to Europe, just first to put into context, you know, historically our growth has been driven by the very strong position we have in the U.S. Europe represents a single-digit share of our spend. Uh, CTV has been the primary driver behind our growth in the U.S., but Europe, you know, European CTV also gaining share. I think in the prepared remarks we talked about, you know, that more than doubled. It grew in the triple digits in uh, in Q1. We did see more of that gap of a gap between North America International in the second half, but it did it recovered a bit uh, in April and, and it recovered back to what we were seeing in January. But there is still some room to improve. I think that you know that's um, that's not a surprise. I think for people who follow the space. The thing I think about when I think about opportunities like that is when, when customers become more deliberate with spend and they, they focus on the most efficient investment opportunities, that's when the trade desk tends to shine because from my perspective, 
we proved it out in the second half of 2020 when we saw that as people needed to be more deliberate, they were focusing on the areas of investment that had the highest ROI. Then they were consulting with us, and it worked out actually quite well in our favor. So I'm super optimistic about that. Uh, with regards to political, it is. It's a great opportunity for us, and, and we'll see how this ramps up because it's going to probably start ramping up for us over the summer, you know, into November, obviously. Um, you know, you've seen reports that talk about midterm elections been, you know, on par or better than the 2020 presidential elections. The one thing I would encourage you to think about as you go through the forecasting is that seasonality is going to be different than we saw in 2020, so you'll need to take that, that into account. Um, there's still a lot of factors to consider, like the number of competitive races out there and stuff, but we do believe we've set ourselves up to be the, the kind of go-to platform for this uh, political advertising versus maybe social media platforms and such. And, you know, we'll have more color on this as we, we, as we progress in 2022, you know, more in the second half of the year, but definitely uh, look forward to some tailwinds there and then whatever, Jeff, you want to add on top. Yeah, uh, so first, I, I agree with everything Blake uh, just said, and he covered almost all of it. I'll just add a, 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 a little bit more color. So uh, first, uh, you know, I've, I've been to, to Europe twice in the last four-ish months, uh, uh, and that's in large part because, uh, uh, there's just such an opportunity shaping up in connected television uh, in, in various markets. We're seeing just a lot of movement from even some of the companies that previously hadn't uh, embraced ads and certainly uh, programmatic open Internet ads and, uh, and are now doing just that. And now with pressure from some of the biggest global players, uh, uh, we're seeing them move relatively quickly, which is why we saw CTV out over 2x in Q1 in EMEA. Uh, um, so just uh, uh, very excited by the momentum. Uh, uh, even in the very rare cases where there's there's pauses or there's, you know, I've seen some supply chains coming from Ukraine that are a little bit more affected in, in EMEA, the, uh, the sentiment is very positive as it relates to their intentions to spend with us in uh, in the rest of the year. Uh, so I've left both of the, the trips in the last four months more positive than when I got there and, and believing that what most people are doing is exactly what we described in the in the prepared remarks, which is when there's some economic pressure or they have to do more with less, they become very data-driven and they become closer partners of ours during that time. And that's exactly what I'm seeing everywhere around the world uh, and maybe as much in EMEA as anywhere else. Uh, um, on the political, I'll just underline what Blake said on the seasonality is a little bit different in a midterm election than it is in a presidential election, so we expect to see more hit the second half. We also hear similar reports of, of just this potentially being record-setting uh, um, uh, for, for political uh, on the macro. Um, but I'll just say, uh, uh, lastly, on, on the political, we I, I'm really proud of what we we've we've proven in the last couple election cycles, which is that we can uh, objectively represent a Democratic the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party, uh, uh, that we can support a fair process, uh, um, and that. 
uh, uh, buying in programmatic and in a data-driven way, there's room for both parties to run a better process uh, uh, than, than what they have in other mediums, in, in, including in some cases in, in, in social. So we're really excited about what we've proven in the past and believe that we've set ourselves up uh, uh, to do more for, for, for both parties and, and, and even the, the, the more independent uh, than what we have, have ever done before. So excited about what that means for the second half of the year in particular. Thank you. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Jason Halfstein from Oppenheimer. Jason, your line is live. Thanks for taking the question. I'll just ask one. Um, just want to focus back on CTV. So for a very long time, um, you know, Google's wanted to get into this, and the media companies don't want them basically doing, you know, programmatic CTV, um, you know, while they let them do, you know, YouTube TV, right, that Google isn't doing the ads. Um, and we've seen media companies try to own um, technology assets, ad tech assets, and have not been good at it. And I guess, Jeff, your perspective, I mean, given what we've now almost seen as kind of like the um, undoing of some of the media mergers where there's like a, a clear idea that content owners need to be content owners and maybe just be the best at that because it's so competitive, you know, just how do you see how that kind of impacts your space on the board and, and ultimately, you know, to be potentially like the default partner, you know, to help the media companies you know, with this transition. Yeah, so it, it, I think your assessment, uh, uh, sort of, that's built into your question, is spot on. I just, I, I believe the tolerance for conflict of interest it, it, uh, among media companies and technology companies is lower than in almost any other place. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that that Google decided to go to the upfront this year. They scheduled their upfronts right on top of Disney's, uh, which is it, it, just sort of bad form, and certainly not a way to to, to win friends. Uh, 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 and, and I think that's somewhat representative of the way that they're being received among many of the the, the, the media companies. Uh, uh, so I, I I think it's just such an amazing backdrop for us to be. Uh, in the CTV space, being one of, and in many cases, the very biggest provider of, of, of ad demand for some of the biggest media companies in the world, and they're leaning into our partnerships in a way they have never before. It's just really incredible. And that's largely because they know who we are. We are very clear on the value that we provide. We are not trying to compete with them. We don't own any content. We, we are constantly both publicly and privately reassuring them that we will not own content. And we do that so that we can create a more effective supply chain, but also so that we can partner with them and be, just be, be very uh, upfront about who we are and what we do, because we think that's the best way to be competitive today. Uh, and so because we think that they're, to some extent, doing the exact same thing, uh, they even even companies like Netflix that were somewhat hybrid content and technology companies have, have largely become a, a content manufacturing machine, uh, uh, and so it, it just creates opportunity for us to partner 
because we're all becoming very clear on who we are and what we do, rather than some tech behemoth that wants to be everything, right? And Amazon competes with nearly every business in the S&P 500 at this point. And, and I think that becomes increasingly prob problematic, especially in the intersection of media and tech. Thanks. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Brent Till from Jefferies. Brent, your line is live. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, maybe if you can give us a quick update on Walmart and any uh, critical milestones uh, that you've had in how you look at that uh, through the second half of, of 22. Thanks. You bet. Yeah, if there's, if there's any topic that didn't get its due, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a rival between our data marketplace and our shopper marketing efforts. So as I did mention, though, uh, uh, we just finished our first full quarter with Walmart. Uh, we saw uh, over 200 advertisers, these are all very large brands, uh, uh, provide test budgets during that time. We expect even more large brands and more expansion uh, uh, as we continue forward. And we think that this is going to be just an amazing growth driver uh, over the next five years. Uh, um, we, of course, saw some, some – early tests and some amazing results from CPGs, as you might expect. Uh, uh, but I don't know that enough has been said about what is, is being done by companies like Walgreens and, uh, and Target and Drizzly, and, and this is Target's uh, division, Roundel, uh, because what they're largely doing uh, is really changing the way measurement works in, in CPG and, and really anything that's primarily built I'm sorry, bought offline, uh, because what it makes possible is the ability to measure from the time you show the ad to the time somebody buys the product uh, uh, and, and measure that end-to-end -end using retail data instead of, you know, a walled garden or a technology company's uh, 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 sort of grading their own homework data. Uh, uh, and so by having that collection there, we now have put together this mosaic that really creates this amazing marketplace. We even call it the measurement marketplace for anybody that's selling products that are largely bought in those those stores. And then, of course, those stores spin their flywheel faster. So the green shoots are fantastic. We've merely scratched the surface, but we're very excited about the start that we've had and very excited about our partnerships with Walmart, and Walgreens, and Drizzly, and Rundell, and, and Gojet, and Flybys, and so many others. Uh, uh, I'm not even listing half of the internationals, uh, 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 but very excited about all the progress. Thank you. Thank you. And the next question is coming from Mark Zagutowicz from the Benchmark Company. Mark, your line is live. Thanks much. Uh, Jeff, I was just hoping you could maybe define, uh, you know, what you consider the large publisher market in terms of of having, I guess, the majority of, of loyal signed-in users and how many you think you need to sign on to UID2 uh, for your platform to come close to uh, replacing, uh, you know, cookie, sh uh, cookie scale, uh, you know, when, when and if uh, Google shuts down uh, cookies. And then, uh, just in terms of UID2, uh, what's the status on finding an, an administrator for UID2, and particularly 
uh, the importance of that in Europe. Uh, I appreciate uh, uh, answers to both. Thanks. Uh, you bet. Uh, uh, so in terms of loyal signed-on users, it's actually a fairly complicated question because there is the question of uh, how many users are signed on, but then there's also, like, how uh, connected are those to sign-ins on, on other websites? Uh, um, so to, to sort of boil it down to what I think is, is the most important and, and easiest to explain concept, uh, uh, there is some amount of, of, of the Internet that needs to be logged in in order to create uh, uh, the ability to model or predict what's happening on the rest of it. Incidentally, this is exactly the same way that that uh, companies that uh, use logins today, like a, a Google or Facebook, as their uh, uh, a primary identity mechanism rather than cookies. That's exactly why they're in a good position: is that they'll use that and then model uh, on some uh, uh, additional percentage. Uh, I, I, in, in general, and this is, we've seen this from some of the independent uh, data companies. You really need only about 10% to be logged in in order to model well on all the rest of it. Uh, I actually think that uh, uh, the numbers can end up being much, much higher than that in terms of what will actually be logged in and what will actually be available on, on UID uh, um, if the trends that we predict uh, uh, continue. So that's the first part of your question. Uh, on the, can you remind me of the second part of your question? Yes, I was just wondering uh, if you uh, what the progress is on finding an administrator oh, for yeah. UID2. By administrator, meaning somebody who's willing to accept uh, liability for violations of GDPR. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, um, because of the fact that well, so first there's there's the European issue, and then there's there's the administrator uh, uh, issue in other parts of the world as well, including in the United States. Uh, what the position that we've taken so far is that we wanted to make UID2 an open source project so that it was available to everybody, uh, and uh, sort of administering or or managing that code base so that it could be available to everybody was the most important first order of business, and that that we've done with the IAB and we've done that uh, based here in the United States, but it's available everywhere in the world. As it relates to administration of uh, 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 its operation, uh, because essentially you're handing over control at that point, it's a double-edged sword. You can hand over liability, but you can also uh, uh, hand over some of its future. That, that's something that we want to be very certain is, is good and secure before we hand that off. So we're in no rush to do that, whether that's with Ivy uh, in the United States or with any entity in Europe. And because in Europe, it, 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 everybody's essentially taking uh, some amount of risk if, if, if you take on the, the, the role of, of controller. Uh, um, so I don't believe that it's an effective way to, to distribute or mitigate risk at this point. Uh, uh, so there's nothing, we're in no rush to do that. And instead, what we want to make certain that we do, especially in Europe, but really everywhere around the world, is develop the system that can scale and make sure that early on we partner with companies that we believe are being responsible, that are doing the right thing, and that we establish very clearly the quid pro quos and the opt-outs that are in compliance with GDPR. 
and we believe that EUID is the most GDPR compliant ID in, in the world. But we will make it interoperable with others that we believe are also doing the right thing, and that's going to create a better Internet, one that I think is really important uh, uh, for, for Europe uh, um, and uh, optimistic that we'll uh, continue to see scale. Um, but we're, we're much more early days in EUID uh, uh, um, than we are in UID2 because there's just a lot more things to consider uh, uh, and a much more political environment. So uh, um, I, I'm, I'm just excited at the progress at this point. Thanks, Mark. Uh, uh, Paul, we have time for one more question. I know we've gone over a little bit, but thanks for everyone for hanging with us. But one more question, Paul, and then we can close it out. Absolutely. The final question will be coming from Michael Morris from Guggenheim. Michael, your line is live. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. I'll, I'll try to squeeze in two final questions. Um, you know, the first one is, is on the pretty consistent comment uh, that you make, Jeff, about the trade desk being the default DSP for the open Internet. Um, obviously, this implies you know, potential for pretty universal adoption across buyers. So I'm curious if you can elaborate on where you are now in terms of partner penetration. You referenced the over 1,000 customers, um, but any frame of reference for what that means for full penetration, sort of how that's been trending would be helpful. And the second question is uh, a little bit of elaboration on the impacts of Netflix and other peers introducing these global ad-supported businesses, which are, are pretty um, new to the market, of course. Uh, does this drive an acceleration in your investment internationally? What, uh, any other kind of fundamental changes uh, that, this, uh, that this makes to the industry? Thank you. Uh, you bet. So, uh, so as it relates to partner penetration, I'm trying to think of the the best way to quantify it. In in general, I believe that we have only scratched the surface. You know, I'm sometimes referencing. You know, last year we had over six billion flows through the platform, but we're still looking at a nearly trillion dollar TAM in terms of what's spent in in total global advertising. So we're still just uh, uh, merely scratching the surface and, and, and a tiny amount of what, what's possible. When you look at how many of those dollars are spent in the Fortune 500, uh, uh, you know, while we're very encouraged by what, we, what we've done inside of the Fortune 500 among the biggest advertisers, when you become the default for them and learn how to support the most sophisticated in the world, of course, it, 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 it then gives you room to do similar things for mid-sized businesses and mid-sized agencies, as we've always supported uh, uh, agencies. Uh, we continue to expand among uh, uh, more and more mid-sized agencies, and that's giving us a, a wider variety of clients, which is why we added so many uh, advertisers, both directly and through agencies. Uh, in in Q1. So I, I think uh, this was a quarter where we added more to the to the uh, to the sort of quantity of uh, of advertisers and agencies than than we usually have. But it, it then tees up the opportunity for us to then get a, a greater share of wallet, where I think there's just still way more upside uh, uh, than. Uh, than sort of dollars we, we already have. Uh, um, you asked if, if, uh, if the, the expansion that we're seeing, especially from these global CTV players, 
if, uh, if, if that will increase our investment around the world. I, I do think it will. I, I, maybe not immediately, but it, I believe that investment will happen in, in, in the coming months and, and quarters. And, and that's largely because, you know, it's, it's difficult to pay for a subscription and, and avoid the ads. Like, you know, in the prepared remarks, I made the reference for the analogy uh, to traditional television where, you know, it's a really a luxury to pay for a station that doesn't have any ads. It, it, it costs more. Um, and so if you think about most markets outside the United States have a median household income that is lower than the United States. And so as a result, uh, most of them would prefer to, to, to pay by seeing ads than by paying a premium. Uh, uh, and especially if you're fighting like hell to go get more subscribers, uh, uh, that becomes the very best way for you to grow in, in new markets. Incidentally, advertisers also love that, especially when you're looking at places like Asia, uh, uh, but even some of the markets in Europe, where uh, uh, there's just such a growth of middle class about to uh, occur or occurring right now, uh, uh, that that just is, is a great time to advertise uh, uh, when when people's wealth is, is growing uh, for the first time to levels that give them sort of unprecedented purchasing power. So uh, I, I definitely think that will result in investments from us around the world. And I do think it will change the CTV landscape around the world to have companies that were historically U.S. companies that continue to become more of a force internationally. And I think ad-supported business models will make them stronger competitors around the world, not weaker. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's conference. You may disconnect your lines at this time and have a wonderful day. Thank you for your participation.